Welcome to the Elevate Life Church podcast of the week. We hope you enjoy this message by Pastor Keith Craft. For more information about this podcast and other resources, visit elevatelife.com. What a beautiful audience in a fantastic church, and thank you, Pastor Keith, for that warm welcome. And I'm just, uh, Kathy and I are honored to be here, 18 years you know, lots of things get legal at 18. You can start doing some stuff at 18. So you guys are going to move forward. You're, you're, you're adults now. 18. You can be seated. Thank you so much for your, for your kindness. I, uh, we love uh, Keith and Sheila and their family. It's a beauty to see them do life together and ministry together. Uh, there should be no apologies made about what the world calls nepotism to empower your children to work with you. It's a foolish notion that the world was good for 5,900 years since Adam with fathers training up their sons and working together, mothers raising their daughters and serving together. And then the corporate world took over and in many ways became its own god so that it began to break down the fiber of the family and teach that it's a word that we call nepotism, which the corporate world says means you can't have your family empowered in your company. So your son needs to go get his own job and find his own career because he can't work here. It's done as much damage to marriage as it's done to father and son relationships, separates people, divides interests. At the end of a long, exhausted day, the typical American family, when they get finished checking their emails and looking at their phone and watching their TV program, has time to nod and look at one another and say, what did you do today? Because we live in different worlds. The reality is God wants us to do life closely together as families and work together as families. And I can tell you one thing, on the other side of the coin, instead of worrying about whether or not everything is copacetic because your pastor has his children and family involved in ministry, you ought to worry about a pastor whose family won't work with him. There might be a reason. So thank you all for what, what you've done. Thank you for the friendship that we have. Actually, this glorious monstrosity of a building that's world-renowned, your church that's one of the greatest in the nation, all of that I could talk about all day. But as much or more than all that you've accomplished, that's what you've done. I actually appreciate more who you are. And I appreciate being your friend. And we're friends for life. Well, let's do something if we could, because Pastor Keith mentioned our new assignment in Washington, D.C. I'll do what I do. I'm not among strangers, I'm among friends. But when I go and preach places now, I always want it to be by design, and sometimes I'm getting to know new friends, and I speak somewhere most weekends in a church that wants to align with us or affiliate with what we're doing or just have us come to bring us a, a specific word in the assignment that we're in. So I, get, I help them get acquainted with us and our history in one minute like this. If the media will help me, we're going to go through a quick, this is like the old missionary slides they used to bring, Okay. So here's the first picture. This is our beautiful family that we serve together with, and we actually turned Covenant Church over to our son, pictured here, Stephen, who's doing an awesome job. 
I know Amy that's seated there has been here and spoken, and I'm proud of my kids and my six grandkids. Second picture shows us in the history of what we built. There's Covenant Church that many of you had a part in and have been there. I show this to people who've never seen that or know where we come from. The third picture is the view that Kathy and I have from our rooftop deck in the condo we live in because that gives me a really strategic prayer advantage in the morning with coffee because I'm looking straight to the east at that view of the Capitol in Washington and then the view to the west, six blocks, is the White House. So I'm strategically placed on Pennsylvania Avenue right in the middle and right in the middle of things is where God wants us to be. So the next picture shows you uh, the front office entrance of the Center for National Renewal. This is on 2nd Street, two blocks from the Capitol, and this is where we hang out and do kingdom business and represent kingdom work. The next picture, I think, is an upstairs view of a, a, a strategic meeting room. And as God would give me a sign, this is not a secret now, but the first day we cut the ribbon and opened this, I actually had a meeting in this room with a U.S. senator to, dis to discuss with him as a believer, asking me to be his pastor in this instance, do I stay a U.S. senator or take an appointment to the Supreme Court? That was the decision that he was faced with making. And that discussion and prayer took place the first day we opened this, two blocks from the Capitol, one block from the Hart Senate building, which, where, which is where all of their offices are. So that's why we're there. Uh, proximity is everything in Washington. You get a call, can you be here in one hour? No, I'm in Dallas. You miss the opportunity. I am there and I can be anywhere in one hour. The next picture shows, uh, that's Kathy and I uh, leaving a congressional meeting with some senators and I mostly just looked at, took, took that picture because Kathy looks so good in it. And the ceiling in that hallway is not bad either, architecturally, if you appreciate that. But we're there for that reason. We go to strategic, important meetings. And I want to explain something to you. I don't go there as a Democrat nor a Republican. I go there as a voice from God, and I maintain a prophetic distance. I, I maintain what I call a prophetic distance that allows me to speak to anyone on either side of the aisle about what thus saith the Lord, and that's the position that I want to have. The next one is a picture. That's a picture of me leaving the White House. I don't take pictures inside the White House. Uh, for this purpose, we, Kathy and I did take some Christmas pictures together there when it was beautifully decorated, but I took that picture because I was just leaving a meeting. Secret Service is waiting down there at the bottom of the steps to take me away from there. But I, I, a friend of mine there snapped that picture, and I keep that just because I want to tell you that Kathy and I went there one year ago with no invitation from anyone to come, but believing that God was calling us to be advocates for the kingdom. At that time, a new president was not even elected. We actually cut the ribbon on the Center for Renewal the week of the inauguration. And so then things began to move. And so now I'm leaving the White House there because I've been invited onto a faith leaders board for the White House, and we have monthly meetings and weekly conference calls about situations and events, and I'm able to represent the compassionate side of the heart of Jesus, whether it be for immigration or for uh, racial healing or those kinds of things. And God has given me an open door there. I want you to pray for me, actually, tomorrow night, I'm going to Atlanta and I'm going to speak at from the King Center 
on Dr. King's birthday and have been invited to do that to speak to the nation about racial healing. I believe God can use us. I believe God can use us in this way in this hour. Is that the last one? Maybe it's not the last one. Oh, this is, uh, this is a picture in front of the MLK Memorial. I'd like to invite you to come with your pastors who are going to come and lead a tour in Washington that I'm going to be a part of that's, that's uh, uh, life-changing. Uh, this is the MLK Memorial uh, just across from the Jefferson, and I was speaking there. Somebody took this picture in the back of the crowd. There's 40 people there in a tour from Covenant, and uh, TBN came there and was filming that speaking on racial healing for America from Dr. King's memorial that's going to be a part of a one-hour television special that they're doing in March on us being in Washington, the Center for Renewal, Government and Politics, and What God's Saying. So I want you to pray for that to be uh, a great thing. And then I think the final little picture that I have, well, that's a picture of the tour inside the Capitol. And I will tell you that when you come with your pastors, we're going to go for a late night tour of the Capitol, and we'll go places that nobody goes. And we'll take you down on the Senate floor where the most important decisions of the world are made. And we can actually go to any senator's desk and pray over the decisions that are made in that uh, region. Because God said to patriarchs like Abraham and, and Moses and Joshua, everywhere the sole of your foot walks, I'll give it to you. So we believe in the dominion of the kingdom, and we believe that you got to be in the space. So that's a picture of our group just finishing up. And uh, that's a picture of Kathy and I in the presidential doors outside the Oval uh, because we, we have an inside, not just on the committee that we're on, but uh, a young name named John that's in a church that we helped start in D.C. and just kind of mentor these young people. Uh, John is the chief decorator for the White House, and he had just finished doing all the decorations in the White House, and he said, please, you and Kathy come. I want to take you all on a private tour and show you all the history and everything I can tell you. He actually has a master's degree from the Smithsonian in provenance and historical American art. So it was a beautiful tour. I wish I had our uh, mistletoe picture, Kathy, because I gave a mistletoe kiss to Kathy under the White House mistletoe <laughs> with George Washington looking on. So it was, it was amazing. So the last picture is just a quick way, I think we have this slide, to ask you to sign up to pray for our nation. Pastor Keith uh, asked me to share this, and I'd like for you to join us. This is a beautiful story. Last October, we launched a national renewal prayer team where I give you a weekly update about what's going on on the inside and what we're praying about. Over 400,000 prayer warriors have signed up with this. And let me tell you this, and it might make you cry like it does me. The largest single group that has signed up to pray for our nation is over 100,000 underground Iranian Christians in Iran have signed up to pray for our country. Maybe they understand more about what we can lose if we lose our country because they don't have freedom of worship in Iran. All you have to do is text NATRENEW to 41411 and just sign up and I promise we won't bother you but you'll join a powerful army of people praying for the nation. Well, I want to take just a moment uh, before we open the word to share uh, a couple of books with you that I brought. Two of them is all I brought. God's Law of First Things is a, a book that I wrote more than 20 years ago and it's kind of every teacher and every author's dream for a book to take on and take on a life of its own 
This book has been out for more than 20 years. I've amended it and updated it a few times, but it's sold more than 1.2 million copies around the world and still continues to have a life because there is a word from the Lord for people in the book, and I appreciate that, and I'd love for you to have it. I've coupled that with my latest book, which is called Influence, Becoming the Leader that Changes the World. It, that's the way God works, is through influence. The Apostle Paul is the epitome of the influence missionary, went to the world's leading cities, impacted men all the way to Caesar, and the gospel went around the world because of Paul's influence. It tells the story really of why we're in Washington and what God is doing and how you can increase the circle of influence for your life and find favor. And that's all Kathy and I are doing is following the favor and just kind of wake up every morning and say, God, what kind of a divine appointment do you have for us today? And it's an amazing thing that God does. Both of these are $15 each and they're just 20 for both for you to have today. And I'd love to meet you in the lobby and say hi and sign my new one for you if you like. I know that you guys do that and I'm glad to do that for you. By request today, I want to share a life message with you about the subject of generosity, living a generous life. And I want to talk to you about how to be radically generous. I want to tell a couple of stories. One story that I just got permission to tell last week. I wouldn't tell the story without having their permission. Steve Green is the CEO of a corporation that owns Hobby Lobby. It's family owned and debt free and Christian to the core. And the reason I'm telling this story is because I was standing and I want you to see it when you come to Washington. I was standing in the first floor lobby of a spectacular, new, exciting museum in Washington called the Museum of the Bible. Did you know in all of our world history, there has never been a Bible museum built? A museum to honor the Bible has never been done. So the Green family decided to do this. But this is the story. This is a spectacular new museum. And when I was there last week, I have an inside, so we won't stand in line when you come. But the good news is the critics thought, the media thought, nobody wants to come and see the history of the Bible with 55,000 artifacts from as far back as 4,000 years. But they missed it. Last week when I was there, if I hadn't had an inside connection, we would have waited two and a half hours. The crowd, every morning at opening time, is six people wide, two to three blocks long around the corner, and it takes two hours to get in. There is hunger for seeing the history of the Bible. Well, here's the story. Years ago, Mr. and Ms. Green started making picture frames in their garage in Oklahoma City. While they were doing that, they wanted to do a work for God, and they committed that they would tithe every dime of their company profits on the Hobby Lobby vision if God would help them. Hobby Lobby amounted to no more than making picture frames in a garage. So God began to bless them. They got one store and then two and then three and then 12. And so I had heard this as a rumor and I asked Steve Green, who's the eldest son and now the CEO of the company, last week in a meeting I ran into him and we're friends. And actually I had a vision meeting with him six years ago at Papado's right down there on the freeway. And he said, Mike, I want to talk to you about what's in our family's heart. What do you think about us doing this? And we had a beautiful meeting just six years ago. And now there's an eight-story magnificent museum three blocks from the Capitol 
that's changing the world. So I said, Steve, tell me this story. Is it true? And he said, it is. And here's what happened. They were multiplying stores and they were tithing 10% on their company and they were doing pretty good. Their, their mother, his mother is an intercessor. They would start every day at their first Hobby Lobby story with a store with Mr. Green doing business and Mrs. Green in a fetal position up under the desk praying in intercession for three to four hours. That's how they birthed the company. I don't know if a fetal position is appropriate, but I guess to me, you'd have to get in some kind of position to be under the desk. That's where she prayed every morning. So Steve said, after we started doing pretty well, this is a testimony I'm giving you. After we started doing pretty well, we were having a family meeting and going to pray for the company. And one of my brothers suggested this. He said, Dad, Mom, we've been raised in the same little church we were in all of our lives, and we've been told this all of our life, that you can't beat God-giving. Dad, Mom, as owners and CEOs of the company, we all work with you. Why don't we try that and see if that's true? Let's see if it's really not possible to outgive God. So they started giving 20%, 30%, 40%. They kept upping it. Now... That has culminated in the opening of the most spectacular museum in Washington called the Museum of the Bible. And the Green family, other than monies they raised from donors and well-wishers like myself, when I heard about it, we gave some money. They've spent $1.2 billion building this museum. And the Green family personally gave $800 million to that museum to build it from funds that started by making picture frames in a garage. Pretty spectacular story. So my point is, the Green family feels like they have proven you can't outgive God. When you commit to put God first in your life and become radically generous, you can't outgive God. I want to show you a slide today that doesn't come from a church-type book. It comes from Harvard Business School. Two authors graduating with a master's from Harvard wrote a book last year, and they tell us this is the latest statistics on the giving of average Americans to all benevolent causes. That means the church, Jerry's kids, American Cancer Society, Heart Fund, everybody. This is what they gave. Category one, all Americans in general, look at the statistic, gave less than 3% of their income to benevolent causes in their church and everything good included. Second category, wealthy Americans, the needle didn't move. They still gave less than 3% of their income. Third category, nominally Christian Americans, which means I'm not a Muslim or a Buddhist and I went to church one time on Easter. Those kind of Christians, nothing moves. They still gave less than 3% of their collective income. Now the needle starts to move. Look at this. Church-going Christian Americans gave 5 to 8% of their income nationally, which means you become a more generous soul just by going to church, which is a good thing. Then look at the last category. Wealthy, devoted Christians in America gave more than 10% of their income. And this survey showed in many cases it was more than 50%. This is the good news about this survey. The bad news or the negative news about this survey is that most Americans are selfish. This is the most narcissistic generation that has ever lived. What's in it for me and you better do it quick. 
Because if you don't, I'm moving on to something else. And that includes churches as well, by the way. What have you done for me lately? That's why this church has distinguished itself by being a serving church. What can I do for you is a huge breakthrough for the church because most of them are, what can you do for me? Less than 3%. But the good news in this survey is in the last category. Fired up, spirit-filled, devoted, church-going Christians, when they have wealth, they will give it. That's the good news. When they have it, they'll give it. So the reason that's good news and the reason this message is important is because here's the heart of God. If he can get it to you and you're already fired up and devoted about the things of God, he can get it through you. It doesn't stop with you. So let's go into looking at this radical generosity for a minute. Psalms chapter 112 says, praise the Lord. Blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who delights greatly in his commandments. I want to ask you a serious question right now and respond for me. How many of you have children or grandchildren that are alive and in the earth? His descendants will be mighty in the earth. How many of you want your kids and your grandkids to be mighty in the earth? I know that you do. The generation of the upright will be blessed. Wealth and riches will be in his house and his righteousness will endure forever. Matthew chapter 6 verse 33 says, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things shall be added to you. Let me make one observation about that verse. Seeking first the kingdom will always bring you all the things that your heart desires, but seeking the things first will never bring you the kingdom. I am not a prosperity gospel preacher because that's a phrase that's been coined recently that's a, a, a buzzword for negativity. I'm not that. This is what I am. There are three choices, and I'll tell you which one I chose. A thousand years ago, the Roman church decided that a good thing to do to make the church strong, keep people holy, and everybody humble was to take for every ministry, every minister, every priest to take a vow of poverty. Now, I, I, I appreciate and respect the sincerity of that doctrine. I don't agree with it, but I appreciate the sincerity of it, which literally was a vow by every minister to say, we will own nothing personally in our entire life. We will only give to people, and when we die, we have nothing. That's the vow of poverty. For real, it's a serious vow that's a part of a major church, a vow of poverty. We will have nothing personally owned. We will die with nothing. Then the overplay of that is in the last 30 years or so, there came what, what came to be known as a prosperity gospel, which sort of got hijacked by the selfish, and it became if you love Jesus and you give a little money and you send Brother Wonderful an offering and you become a partner with my ministry, then you're going to have 12 garages and 8 Rolls Royces and you're going to have everything you ever dreamed of, and it appealed to selfishness and greed, and it seemed to work for the preacher and nobody else. I would go to meetings at those kind of churches, and there was a really nice car where the preacher parked and a bunch of broken down Volkswagens with all of his followers. Somehow that's not the gospel working. The gospel's intent was not to make it good for the preacher and everybody else is still broke. I know that you have an empowering pastoral ministry in this house that wants everyone to do well. This is what I believe. I am in choice number three. 
I believe in the sufficiency gospel. The promise of the word of God is, I will give you all things needed related to the calling that I've placed on your life. If you need it to accomplish what I've called you to do, I will provide it. I believe in the sufficiency gospel. I have no interest in having so many toys that I win the contest at the end of my life to say you gathered more toys than anybody. But I do believe that God will provide everything I need to do what God has called me to do. I believe in the sufficiency gospel. And I hope that you do. How cruel would it be for God to invite you into a beautiful calling and then give you no resource to do it? No, I know who does that. That's what the devil does. The devil working through Pharaoh when the children of Israel lived in Egypt as slaves, Pharaoh said, listen, here's what I'm going to do. I want you to make all the bricks necessary to build the pyramids, but I'm going to take all the straw away and you won't have any building materials. Just go out and scratch in the dirt for the raw materials to make bricks to build me a pyramid. That's what the devil does. But God says, I've called you to do a great thing in the earth, and therefore I am obligated to supply for you everything you need to do what I've called you to do. Sufficiency gospel. And I believe when you get busy doing what God's called you to do, then he will send unexpected resources and do miracles. Listen, I'm fresh off of a beautiful miracle in the last 60 days sharing this word with a friend of mine's church And he asked me to come and share this word because they were going to launch a thing to add on to their youth ministry and department. It's a valid cause. Jesus loves young people. I was there to convince his church that knows me pretty well. And I was a voice of trust to them. And I went there to talk to them about how important it is to give to the kids. Watch Jesus now, though. He had something bigger in mind. I didn't know this. I hadn't talked to anyone. I didn't know the secret desire of the pastor's heart. Jesus had something bigger in mind. So as I finish this message that I'm sharing with you right now, the spirit of prophecy was stirred in my heart. And the pastor said, would you pray your blessing over us? And I said, I will. And as I do that, let me tell you what God just said. Because you care about young people and you've given an offering today to expand the youth department, God says there's someone in this audience that no one in this church even knows that's going to write a single check to pay off all the debt for this entire campus. And three days later, the pastor called me and said, an anonymous check was sent to our church. I don't even know who it is that was in that service and paid off our entire campus. Sufficiency. God is saying, when you start really caring about the things that touch my heart, It's no big thing for me to take care of you. I'll take care of you. So in Exodus chapter 13, God started this beautiful story when he said to Moses, tell the children of Israel to set aside to me all the firstborn. Whatever opens the womb among the children of Israel, both a man and beast, say it with me, it is mine. So God lays claim to every firstborn animal on every Israeli farm as their offering. And that's where the birth of what we call first things or first fruits come from. But now I want you to watch the layers that God adds. Because right now it's just a general request for first, every firstborn animal is mine. Then in Exodus 13 and 11, he drops down in that chapter and says, Then it shall be 
When the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites as he swore to you and your fathers and gives it to you that you might set apart to the Lord all that open the womb, that is every firstborn that comes from an animal which you have, the males shall be the Lord. See there? Now there's an added layer. He started off by just saying animals, every beast, every firstborn beast is mine. Now he says, okay, the girls, you're free. Every firstborn male. Now he's going to add a couple more layers. Watch. Every firstborn male shall be the Lord's. But every firstborn of a donkey. Now he's going to say something strange. Stay with me. He has nothing against donkeys, but I'll have to explain this. Every firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem. There's that beautiful word. This is the first time it's ever used in the Bible. Redemption means for one person to take the place of another. That's what Jesus did for us. You shall redeem with a lamb. And if you will not redeem it, then you shall break its neck. And all the firstborn of man among your sons you shall redeem. God doesn't want human sacrifice. Verse 14, so it shall be when your son asks you in time to come, saying, what is this that you shall say to him, by strength of hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. That verse, I want this to become something really big for you today. That verse might be the most pure, beautiful, single-handedly focused verse on why we give to the things of God of any verse in the Bible because I want to explain it to you quickly. What is the context? God is very practical, and he's saying to the Israelites, I want you to bring every firstborn male lamb to me to be sacrificed once a year to pay for the sins of your family. That was the Old Testament system. Now, God being practical knew that the children were intricately involved in raising those sheep. One of them would likely become like a pet, especially to smaller herds of flocks of sheep where they weren't commercial in the business and have hundreds, they might've only had three or four. So God said, here's what's going to happen. Dad, when you have your son put a little leash around the neck of his favorite little lamb and you're taking it up to the temple, you're going to explain to him, son, here's what we're going to do. We're going to give this lamb to be sacrificed. And this is going to be the covering for our sin. Watch how practical God is. And God says, when your son says to you, Why do we do this? You say to him, by strength of hand, son, the God God brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. Why is that important? Because Israel spent 430 years in Egypt as slaves. And then when God brought them out, he knew that they were going to forget where they came from if he didn't put some bookmark reminder in place to say, every time you give a lamb as an offering, you give it to remind yourself where you would be if God had not delivered you. So I want to take 30 seconds to tell my story. And while I do, I'm going to ask you to think about your story. Where would you be? I'd like to think where I would be, and I don't like it. I was born in Columbus, Ohio, to a little family of coal miners and service station workers returned from World War II broken men with PTSD, and they didn't know what to call it in those days. My grandparents were the first divorced people I ever knew. It was a shame to be divorced in the 50s. You almost had to move out of town. My grandparents were divorced and remarried back to each other three times. They were alcoholic, dysfunctional, broken people. My mother and father were good people who had a good heart and a hunger for God but didn't know God or where to find him. 
My parents had never been in a church to attend one single service until they went to a church to get married. And then a year later, I was born, and I'm now two years old, and my dad was a hot rodder, and a bunch of he and his buddies, and they were all young couples, shame on them, were being ornery, and he had a little 36 Chevy that was really fast, and they heard about an old-fashioned tent revival happening outside of town with a bunch of simple-minded little Pentecostal people that they wanted to make fun of. So they went down there to make circles around that tent and do burnouts and squeal their tires and throw rotten eggs at them. And something got a hold of my dad's heart. And he said, so that night we gave them grief. And the next night I said to mom, would you like to go back? I'd like to sit in the back and see what they're really all about. And that's where they got saved. And then he led his parents to the Lord and then the family all came to God. And then in one generation removed from my father is me. And then I can sit in a service today with Keith and Sheila and hear beautiful stories about what this church has become because of me releasing this couple to come to Frisco, Texas, which was a tiny and easy thing for me to do. What am I? But for me to be able to have any part in a beautiful picture like we are seeing today, coming from the brokenness and dysfunction of alcoholism and divorce and lostness, but then the God of elevation came into our family. And you can't be in relationship relationship with this God without being elevated. I, I, I elevate life church. I'm sure you know this, but if you don't, you need to, because it's the name of your church. You need to know that the first name that God ever revealed to the patriarch Abraham was one of his favorite names in the Hebrew. It's pronounced El Elyon. Elyon means most elevated God. That name of God means there are other gods that have set up shop, but they've all gone broke. I'm the only God still in business. I am the elevating God. I am the high and lifted up God. I am the God above all gods. I'm the God that gets a hold of your life no matter what kind of cesspool you're pulled out of and raises you to a place that you could only dream. I'm the elevating God. So how about all the people in the elevation church the Elevated Life Church gives some glory to the elevating God. He's an elevating God. Now you all be seated and let me get back inside of myself. I'm from Washington, D.C. now. Settle myself down here. So in Numbers 18, he's going to add another layer now. Everything that first opens the womb of all flesh, we got that which they bring to the Lord, whether man or beast shall be yours. Nevertheless, the firstborn of man you shall surely redeem. I'm not asking for human sacrifice. And the firstborn of unclean animals. Okay, watch this, because that's the third layer. Because earlier when God was talking about animals, he didn't designate clean or unclean. So is it different barnyard habits? What makes one animal clean and one unclean? He's going to explain it. The clean ones are those that he allows for sacrifice. The unclean are not approved for sacrifice. He's going to give us the list. But the firstborn of a cow, you shall redeem. The firstborn of a sheep or the firstborn of a goat, you shall not redeem. They are holy. Did you notice that a donkey isn't on that clean animal list? So you remember what he said earlier about the donkey? He said, if you have a firstborn donkey... 
That's not on the clean animal list. Don't sacrifice that. That's not an offering. Don't bring a donkey. Redeem the donkey with a lamb. In other words, you keep the donkey. You buy it from me with a lamb. You bring a lamb for sacrifice, and then you're free. And everything else on your farm is redeemed because you brought the first fruits and you redeemed the donkey. So now the donkey gets to live and he can become the pickup truck for your little uh, farm. He's the beast of burden. He carries you places. He takes the harvest to market. A donkey was integral to their operation. But God said, if it's firstborn, it's mine. So it has to be paid for. So when you redeem it with a lamb, then you bring the lamb and you can sacrifice the lamb in its place, which is the act of redemption. So now look at the layers we have from God's law of first things. Every animal, firstborn, is mine. But don't sacrifice those that aren't clean. Only the uh, clean. Only the unclean cannot be sacrificed. Thirdly, it must be the male of the species. The gender must be the male. Okay, now the scene is set for us to jump the boundary from Old to New Testament. John the Baptist is born. He is the son of the high priest and his wife. That's the man in Israel. When you were the high priest in Israel in those days, you made sacrifice for the sins of all the people. Believe me, the high priest was the epitome of the hero of Israel. And in any generation, I can promise you, the high priest didn't pay for his own dinner at any restaurant in Jerusalem because he went before God for you, for your sins. And you wanted to be really nice to him. And it was a cush job. The problem was God had abandoned that system and the temple 400 years earlier. God, God's voice had not been heard in the Jerusalem temple for four centuries. It's amazing how long religion can, can, can still go right on with no God in the middle of it. So they shuffled about their sacerdotal priestly duties and never missed God. But John was born and he was different. So John said, even though I could be the next high priest, I'm going to reject that opportunity. I'm going to take my ministry to the Judean hills in the wilderness. I'm going to wear animal skins and eat natural off the land. He was the Bear grills of the Old Testament. And so John is doing life out there preaching this thunderous message of repent for the kingdom of heaven is coming. I am not the Messiah, but the Messiah is on the horizon. Now, Jesus, by actual birth, was John's cousin. And so they knew one another growing up. But John preceded Jesus. He was six months older than him. Do you remember when Elizabeth was carrying John and Mary was first receiving the news of her being pregnant with Jesus? And she went and told Elizabeth. And the Bible says that Elizabeth said, when Mary declared to Elizabeth... I am pregnant with child who is the son of God. I've been overshadowed by the most high. And the Bible says that the baby in Elizabeth's womb, John, leapt. You know why John leapt? Because until Mary said yes to the assignment to bear Jesus, John's life had no purpose. So if Jesus had not been born, John may have been stillborn because there was no reason for John's ministry as a forerunner unless Mary had said yes to the assignment to bear Jesus. You don't know how many people depend on you doing the right thing. So Jesus is now almost 30 years old. He has not started his ministry yet. And he comes down to the Jordan River, and John is baptizing. Now, this was an experience, man. 
I go to the Jordan River. When we go to Israel, we baptize in the Jordan River. I love that experience. I, I baptize people and I let them baptize me every time. And there are a few scaredy cats in our group that don't get baptized in the Jordan River. I'm not looking over there at Kathy at all because Kathy is like, there's, there are catfish and stuff in that river. I'm not, I'm like, this is Jesus river, man. I'm getting baptized. I don't care if a catfish bites my toe. I'm going to get baptized in the Jordan river. So John is baptizing people in the Jordan. John was a piece of work, man. John is like loud and fiery and wearing animal skins and living out in the desert. And his dad was the high priest. And they're like, has this guy lost his mind? But the power of God was with him and his revivals were growing. And he was baptizing people under repentance by the hundreds they were coming. The scribes and Pharisees would stand in the back of the crowd and talk behind their hand. And it didn't bother John. Every once in a while, he'd dunk somebody, remember to bring them back up. And then he'd just with a scathing warning, talk to the Pharisees, you, you devils, you whited sepulchers on the outside, you look good. On the inside of you, you're full of dead men's bones. I mean, he was basically running your average seeker-sensitive ministry. <laughs> and then one day he baptizes someone and he brings them up from the water and he looks and he can hardly believe it. He takes a step back. His cousin Jesus is standing in the back of the crowd. Jesus sees him and they lock eyes and Jesus is like, thumbs up, man, this is awesome. And John said, I want to talk to you after church. He's like, yeah, I'll hang around, wait on you. And so John goes back to baptizing, and all of a sudden, because John is a prophet, the anointing of the Holy Ghost comes on John, and he brings one up from baptism, and he turns around not to address the next one in the water, but to address the one on the hill. And the solitary figure standing with folded arms on the hill, John points to, and with prophetic unction and power declares this to the world. Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. Watch this. Here's what happened in the heavens and in the earth and in hell. The moment that John as a prophet declared Jesus to be a firstborn male lamb, he sealed his fate. Jesus could not be redeemed. He had to be offered. So let me show you how seriously the Father takes this first thing's message. The day that Jesus died on the cross is the day that Father God paid his tithes because he gave his firstborn male lamb. God lives by his own law. You know why he did it, though? I'm going to make you feel either real good and real proud or real humble or all the above because that's what it does to me. You know why the Father was willing to do that? Because remember the law of first things? What is done with the first when it is offered redeems all that comes thereafter. So the Father looked down and said, Son... This is going to be a really hard day. In fact, the prophet said this, God turned his face. He could not look. The father turned his face and basically said to every demon in hell, do to him on that cross whatever you wish to do. And for the next 18 hours, they beat him and they cursed him. 
and they spat on him and they pulled out his beard and they nailed his hands. And Jesus experienced for a few moments what, listen, listen to me carefully, Jesus experienced for a few moments what none of us in this room have ever felt one moment in our life, and I want to explain that. The Bible says that the Father turned his face from the cross. And that's when Jesus cried out and says, Father, why have you left me? Because I'm going to tell you what Jesus experienced that none of us ever have. Whether you're a churchgoer or this is the first time you've ever stepped in a church. The love of God. The covering of God. The grace of God. The blessing of God has covered you all of your life. You have never known a moment where the Spirit of God has chosen to withdraw himself and let you even for a moment feel the unbelievable blanket of the abject darkness of the total absence of the grace and presence of God. I think if you ever felt that, you would scream in terror because all we've ever known is the covering of the grace of God. And so Jesus felt that darkness and that terror. The earth shook with an earthquake. When he died, they took him down, his lifeless body put it in a borrowed tomb. And the father's like, okay, because I gave my firstborn, my lamb of God, then everyone who comes thereafter is redeemed. So now all of you who sit under the sound of my voice today are what the father saw that made it worth it to him to give up Jesus. He gave up Jesus to get us. You give the first to redeem all the rest. So everyone that will ever ask is redeemed. That's why it appears that we can get people saved so easily. It's really not easy at all. It's easy for us, thank you, because it only takes 10 seconds. Jesus, I believe in my heart and confess with my mouth that you died to save me from my sins, and I believe in you. Bang. Done. Name in the Lamb's Book of Life, going straight to heaven when you die, and living an anointed life now. Sounds easy, doesn't it? Wasn't that easy for Jesus? Wasn't that easy for the Father? They had to go through that to get us this. But it's a total message of first things. The salvation that we enjoy is a total message of first things. God gave his first so he could redeem all that comes thereafter. Now that brings me to the end. Why is it important that it be first? Some, listen, I've heard everything. As you can imagine, with a book out on this subject for 20-some years, I've heard it all. Recently, I was in a restaurant, and someone knew about this, and there was a pastor there, and there, he had 10 or 12 people at a table, and they had a, a pretty uh, uh, interesting, heated discussion going on. And when I walked in... When I walked in, the man that was arguing with the pastor, he leaned back in his chair and he says, my gosh, there's Mike Hayes just walked in. He wrote the book. Come over here, Mike. I walked over to the table. I didn't know what I'd walked in the middle of. And he says, the point I'm making is you can do better than anybody. 
tell the, this pastor and the people at this table that Jesus died to redeem us from the curse of the law. And I said, absolutely. Jesus died to redeem us from the curse of the law. Then the gentleman said to his pastor, see, I told you tithing was nailed to the cross. I said, now wait a minute. You ask me, was the curse of the law nailed to the cross? And I said, yes. I said, sir, with all due respect, tithing was the financial plan for moving the nation of Israel into becoming a great power in the earth. Tithing is the plan for supporting the work of God. Tithing was never thought to be the curse of the law. The curse of the law was an eye for an eye, the soul that sinneth shall surely die. Those were the things that were nailed to the cross. I said, what you're suggesting, if that be true, is the most audacious argument I could ever make, and it's a total slap in the face to God. And he's like, well, why is that? I said, because the position you have chosen in your debate is that Jesus had to die an awful death on the cross so you wouldn't have to tithe. Really? Was it worth that? Are we really that stingy and narcissistic that somehow Jesus had to die on a cross so we wouldn't have to give anything? Is the object of life to see how selfish we can be? And it's all about us and we never do anything for anybody? Is that where we've really come to? Let me show you why it has to be first. Very simply this. With Jesus, it was first. It has to be first because if it's not the first portion, there's no faith in it. Let me explain. When you were, let's, let's say that all of us are Israelites and we're in the wilderness and we're starting our little Israeli farm and we buy our first little ewe lamb and we want her to be fruitful and have babies and we want to build a nice little flock of sheep because they, they took, listen, the children of Israel in the wilderness used everything from the sheep but the bath. When they slaughtered a sheep, it was all used. They used the wool. They used the horns. They used the bones. They used the meat. They made the broth. They lived by the sheep. And the sheep was a prolific breeder, and they had uh, lambs often, and you wanted your flock to grow, and that's what your life subsisted of. It was, it was survival. Now, God could have said it this way. Listen, all of you are going to raise sheep. Yes, sir. Sheep is a good animal. We like it. Makes nice uh, Middle Eastern food. We like it with a little hummus and grape leaves. And yes, it'll be awesome. I'm going to make all of you hungry. It's almost lunchtime. God said, okay, here's the arrangement. Just uh, start raising your sheep. I'm going to give you a little starter herd. And when you get about a hundred of them, when you get about a hundred of them and you're doing really well and it's feast time at the temple, would you bring me one? Sure. No problem. Problem is that's not what God said. God said, when you start your little family and your little herd and you want to get started, you get your little uh, couple that's going to have baby lambs, first one you have is mine. Really? Yeah. What, what if we don't have any others? We're going to be really excited about that first one. What assurance do we have that we're ever going to have any more? You don't. Just me. If you trust me, I'm going to promise you're going to have a lot of them. But I want to see if you love me enough to give me the first one you got. Because if it's not the first one, it doesn't have faith attached to it. Because if you wait till you have a hundred, I'll consistently get left out. Isn't it amazing that graphic that I showed you at the beginning and as I close here, 
Isn't it amazing that there are more Americans complaining about people in churches talking too much about money? But it must not be working because less than 3% of them give anything. Radically generous means I understand that God is worth first place in my life and the faith in God is in my giving so that even if nothing else ever comes to me, I'll give him the first one I get. So let me close by showing you some simple slides that I make. I took, made, I took some pictures for you and I've got 10 dimes there on my desk. That equals $1. One of those there is God's because that's what I earned this week. That could represent $1,000 or $100,000 or a million. It's the same principle. It's interesting how people change their tithe doctrine the bigger the numbers get. It's all relative, folks. Some people just don't get it. I was in a church a while back doing a training on this, and I said, how many of you, this is after I'd taught them everything I know that I could about tithing. I said, how many of you from your week's income, your business deals, whatever you're doing, how many of you would like to owe the church and your pastor today when they take the offering a million dollars in tithe? Three people raised their hand, and the rest were, oh, my God. And I'm like, three people in this room get it. If you owed a million in tithe, you got nine million left in the bank. And I said to them, and I'll say to you, if you can't make it on nine-tenths of everything left over, you can't make it on the whole thing. You're living above your means. So one of these is God. See it? It's just random, though. It's random. So I get asked this question about first things more than any other question in the book. How do I know which is first? Easy. Bam. Here's the next slide. You move it to the front. You determine which one is first because it's the first one given. It's the first one given. That's what determines its place. First check written. You know where your faith comes in? Okay, Jesus, here's what we're doing. Before the light bill gets paid, I'd rather sit in the dark than not give you your part. So you're going to get yours. And guess what? You'll never sit in the dark. But if you want to pay every bill you can possibly dig out of the drawer... And then by the time you get to church, if you've got anything left, give God a little tip. There's no faith in that, man, after you've taken care of everybody else but God. So I put it at the front of the line. Then what do I do? I come to Elevate Life Church, and the pastor talks to me about the offering, and I'm like, you know what I'm going to do, God? I'm going to take that first fruit and honor you. Bam! I'm going to give it to you. So it goes in the offering plate. Now I'm going to tell you something that you won't even believe I've got a scripture for, but I do or I wouldn't say it. This is going to blow your mind. When you give your tithe and your offering in this church today, before it goes to whatever bank this church happens to use to process the money so you can do what has to be done to pay the bills and keep this beautiful ministry strong and alive, it goes to heaven before it goes to your bank. Hebrews chapter 7 says, here... Mortal men receive tithes, but there he receives them. What? That means that the mortals who are going to gather the tithe and offering today are just men, just women, not aliens, just people that receive your tithe. But there, and all of Hebrews 7 is about the priesthood ministry of Jesus, who is called Melchizedek in the Old Testament, the theophany of God. Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father, and I don't know if this, thr this thrills you like it thrills me, but today you're going to give Jesus a chance to call your name, and it really makes him proud when he takes your tithe, sitting at the throne of God and says, look, Father, 
2,000 years since I gave my life as a sacrifice, and there are thousands of them down there giving their first fruit tithe to us because they trust and they believe. Father, what kind of blessing can we arrange for them this week? Lord, there's a little family down there in Oklahoma City making picture frames in a garage, but they've got some really big dreams to build a museum to the Bible. It's going to cost a billion dollars. I wonder, Lord, if we could, I think, Father, we can trust that kind of people. Let's open up windows of heaven over them. Let's bless them. So before your tithe goes to the bank, it goes to the heavens. And then I close with this, and I'm going to pray for you and bless you. Malachi chapter 3 says this. Bring all the tithe into the storehouse that there may be meat in my house. You know it. You can quote it just like I can, but I'm going to quote it for you, and then I'm going to show you something new. Bring all the tithe into the storehouse that there may be strength in my house and let me prove me now herewith that I can pour, open the windows of heaven and pour out for you blessing that there not be room enough to contain it and I will rebuke the devourer for your sake. Now, quickly, when the Bible is translated into English, the translators add words to make it read easier. If you speak a foreign language, you understand this. For instance, if you speak Spanish, Spanish is written in backwards words. I study Spanish. So if you translate it literally, the sentence won't make sense. I do like one thing about the Spanish language. They start the sentence with the punctuation. I love that. Because in English, we end the sentence with a question. So with a question mark if it's a question. So we go all the way there, and you don't know it's a question until you get to the end. But Spanish starts at the first with a question mark. It's like, here you go. This next sentence going to be a question. Love that. So the translators of the Bible, to put it in English, added words to make it read easier. But sometimes they add a large number of words, and it doesn't add to the meaning in a negative way. But I want to show you this verse. I'm going to quote it to you now, totally from the original language that it was written in when it was written in Hebrew and Greek. Here's what it says, and I'm going to eliminate the added words. Now, in your Bible, not your smartphone, but your Bible, the added words are italicized so that the translators showed, in order to be true to the text, they show you what words they add. So if you read this at home from your Bible, you're going to see this is true. I'm going to quote that verse for you, and I'm going to remove the added words. Bring all the tithe into my storehouse, saith God, and prove me with this, that I will open heaven's windows, that not enough, and I will rebuke the devourer. Do you see how much was uh, taken out that was added? There's nothing in the original text about room, not be room enough to receive it and all that. Good words, but it's not in the original text. I think it's better without it added because it puts an emphasis on something that I think we overlook so easily. And it's going to be the two-part breakthrough prayer that we're going to pray here in just a minute. I want you to get this. Here's what the verse says. When you give your tithe to God, God says, this is my promise to you. I'm going to give you two things. Oral Roberts told me before he died that for 30 years in tent revivals with tens of thousands of people, Oral actually had to have two surgeries on his rotator cuff because in those days he would pray for thousands of people a night and hold his arms up like he would sit in a folding chair and hold his arms up like this. He had to have in his 80s two surgeries on his rotator cuff because he just destroyed them by going for years and years praying for people by laying on of hands like this. Oral said, Mike, I struggled for 30 years begging God to open the heavens over my tent. 
And one night, he said, in Ponca City, Oklahoma, the heavens opened over that great tent and ev for eight minutes, and everyone in that tent was healed of whatever disease they had. Tears began to course down his face. And he said, Mike, you want to live under open heavens. Well, this verse says, bring your tithe into the storehouse that there may be strength in my house. That's the church. Prove me in this and see if I won't, A, open heaven's windows for you. You want that, don't you? Open heavens. But then all that other part is removed and here's all it says. I will open heaven's windows, that not enough. Why did he say it that way? Don't add all those words because of the next phrase. And I will rebuke the devourer for your sake. That's equally important as much as open heavens. How would you like to be, and maybe you could go see the movie. I haven't seen it yet. It's supposed to be a historic depiction about the, uh, uh, about the kidnapping of J. Paul Getty, the richest man in the world's grandson. Um, how would you like to live a life where you are the richest man in the world, if you call that open heavens, the richest man in the world, but your family is filled with kidnappings, disease, mental illness, suicide, divorce, division, and depression. That's living a life with all the resource you could ever use, but the devourer destroying it as fast as God gives it. So God says, I don't just want open heavens for you. I want to rebuke the devourer off of your life so that your blessing remains. So just before we pray, I'm going to tell you, because Jesus used rebuke often in the New Testament. You remember when they were in the terrible storm and the Bible says Jesus stepped out on the bow of the ship and what did he say? The Bible says that he rebuked the wind and the waves and said to them, peace be still. And they laid down like puppy dogs at his feet and they made their way across the Galilee. Rebuke in the original language means this. Stop, get back, that's enough. What's that worth to you? For the Holy Spirit to look today over your family, your children, your career, your job, your dreams, your health, and say to that devouring spirit that wants to destroy everything good about you and your family. And God says, listen, children, you're my kids. You put me first. You've proven me. So I'm gonna do two things for you. Angels, get a hold of the crank over there on the windows. Open the windows of heaven over that life. And then while you're doing that, I'm gonna do what only I can do. I'll let you crank the windows open but this other guy, I've got authority over. I had authority over him when he was called the destroyer in Egypt that was killing every firstborn. And I said, just put blood on your doorposts and I won't let him go in your house. It's selective blessing, ladies and gentlemen. It happens for you. It doesn't happen to the guy next door. It's just your blessing. So if you put blood on your doorpost, then the Holy Spirit's anointing would cover your house and the destroyer coming through the land in fact, let me throw this in there real quick because you got to get this. This is theology, but this is spiritual. Evidently, the destroyer didn't know the difference nor care who was an Egyptian or who was an Israelite. 
All he was there to do was destroy. The only difference he made was when he saw the blood on a doorpost, he had to respect the blood and couldn't go past that. And the only ones that knew about it were the Israelites who decorated their doorposts with blood. The destroyer doesn't care what your name is, who your family heritage is, where you came from, what your DNA looks like, what your genetic predisposition is. He is going to attack you. It doesn't matter what kind of sickness, disease, division, brokenness, misunderstanding leads to divorce and issues and problems. Indiscriminate destroyer. But God can say to him, no, no, not that one. Stop. Get back. That's enough. Thanks for listening to this week's podcast. Make sure to get your copy of Pastor Keith Craft's book, Your Divine Fingerprint, and visit elevatelife.com for other exciting new content from Elevate Life Church.